All right. Morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Tony. I am one of the pastors here. I also serve as the Westside Venue Director. Uh, last week, we as a church, we started a new series here at Riverview called Onward We Stumble. And this series, it comes from a line in our mission statement uh, that we have as a church. And our mission statement at Riverview is this, that we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. And in the middle of that statement there, you read, right, as we stumble together. That's what this entire series is going to be about. Last week, uh, Pastor Noel, he kind of started our series by laying out this internal reality that we live with as Christians every single day. And it's that continual battle we have between the old self and the new self. The old person we were before we believed and the person that we're now becoming because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now that old person we were, that's who we were before we were Christians, right? All of our hopes, all of our desires, all of our wants, all of our needs. But the new person is the person that God is making through the power of the Holy Spirit to change, to make more like himself. See, what happens in us, in our faith, is over time is, is we grow, right? Just like babies become toddlers, who become kids, who become teenagers, who become adults, hopefully, right? Uh, like we do the same thing. In our faith, we grow. We start off, once we put our faith in Christ, we start off as infants in the faith. But, but through God's power and through God's timing, we mature. And we mature uh, in our understanding and through our belief and our practice of God's word to us. But that lifelong process of us becoming more godly is bumpy, <laughs> right? We stumble. And that's what this entire series is going to be about. We find ourselves often reverting back to the things that God saved us from. So over the next five weeks or so, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some specific topics, some specific areas of our life that we, as followers of Jesus, often stumble in. And what we're going to look at this morning is the topic of individualism. Now, like any topic we're going to hit, it's going to be really helpful for us to start with a definition of, of what we're talking about. Because me even saying that word, different things might pop into your mind. Right? You may think, I don't know why that is something we would stumble in, but some people may think, oh yeah, it really is. But here's what we're going to be talking about. Here's the, the, the definition we're going to be operating from this morning. Individualism is this mindset that your life should mar be marked first and foremost by your own autonomy, your own self-rule, right? your self-reliance and your independence. Now, if you were to flip through your Bible later today, uh, you wouldn't find any Bible verses that really express how individualism specifically as a word is a sin, right? Some, some aspects of individualism are good, like independence, self-reliance, right? That's what we have to do as we grow, as we become adults, right? But there is a degree in which we can pursue those very things that can become unhealthy for us. We can idolize those things. And certain sin issues pop up in our lives once we idolize individualism, a pursuit of life apart from other people instead of alongside them. You know, I feel like for us, living where we do and when we do, this can often be a subtle and undetectable thing um, in our lives. Because this is, this is one of the very values that's wrapped up in our identity as Americans. I mean, it's part of the American way, right? The ideals and the values that our country was founded on. William Herberg was a sociologist back in the 1950s, and he explained these values in this way. I like his definition. He said, the American way of life is what? 
individualistic. It's dynamic and it's pragmatic. It affirms the supreme value and dignity of the individual. It stresses incessant activity on his part or her part. For he's never to rest, but is always to be striving to get ahead. It defines an ethic of self-reliance, merit, and character. And it judges by achievement. Look at what he says last. Deeds, the things we do, not creeds, the things we say, the things we believe, are what count. Now, I think we often pride ourselves. We often think very highly of ourselves in our country because of the very things that Herberg writes about there, right? We never rest. We always strive to get ahead. We're self-reliant. We should be judged by the things that we do. And we can think those are desirable traits and qualities, right? It's good to work hard, right? It's good to provide. It's good to achieve. So how do we stumble when it comes to that as followers of Jesus? Well, I think as followers of Jesus, we often stumble when we, how we view ourselves as individuals, it doesn't match what God says about us in here. When we either view ourselves as individuals much higher or much lower than who God says we are. And this morning, we're going to look at how we do that, both higher and lower. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and flip to Genesis 1. We're going to start in the very beginning. We're going to flip all around the Bible today. Uh, But I really wanted us to start in the very beginning with the creation account, because it's in the very beginning that we see how valuable we truly are as human beings made in the image of God. So as you're flipping there, I'm going to give us a little bit of context. The book of Genesis, it's the first book of the Bible. And Genesis chapter 1 is this beautiful account of how God created everything that exists. And I love how the Bible starts. It's just with four simple words. In the beginning, God. The rest of the chapter, rest of chapter one, it lists out all the things that God created. And what we see is you see God's power and his creativity on display. Because all God did, the text would say, and God said, and then things came to be. We see God's power. He created with his voice. Day, night, sky, water, dry land, vegetation, the sun, the moon, fish, animals, everything. But on the final day that God created, he ended by creating his favorite thing, the crown jewel of his creation, the thing that is more valuable, more elaborate, more creative, more awe-inspiring than anything in the world. He made us. He made a human being. The only thing in creation that was made in the image of God was mankind, a man and a woman. We see this, uh, we see this described in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So we see in the very beginning of the Bible, that humanity, men and women, individuals are made in the image of God. They're the most highly valuable thing that God made. And God gave them a job. He gave humanity a job to have dominion over the creation that God had given them. 
And God not only gave them a job, but he gave them some ways to which they can best enjoy the creation, but also enjoy life present with him. And we see this a little bit later on when God had said, you, you too, you can eat of anything in the garden. You can partake of any tree except for one. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everywhere else you can eat from. Because if they ate of that, God said, they would die. Well, in Genesis 3, we see this very thing happen. Adam and Eve, if you're familiar with what happens, uh, they're deceived by Satan in the garden. Satan had taken the form of a serpent, and then he deceives them by making God out to be a liar. Look at what happens. This is Genesis 3. I'm going to read 11 verses here. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say... See how it even starts. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's not what God said. But we see this deception start. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit in the trees of the garden, but about the tree of the, in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it. Again, not what God said. Or you will die. He said you just couldn't eat it. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And then look at what he says, and you will be like God. Hold on to that phrase. Knowing good and evil, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Okay. So these 11 verses are what are often referred to as the temptation and the fall of mankind. Because it's in these 11 verses that we see this beautiful creation, right? This, just get marred with sin. Sin is any time that we fail to reflect God's image. And we do so in our nature because of what happened here. But then we also do so with our attitudes. We do so with our actions. And we see that happen here with Adam and Eve. They're tempted by Satan with, with being like God. So they eat the fruit. Satan convinces Adam and Eve that God is holding out on them. If they would just disobey, if they would just make their decision that's best for themselves and disregard what God had told them, that's where life is. They would be like God. And the moment they do that, it says that their eyes were opened. And that wasn't a good thing. And we know that because of what they do next. In that moment, they cover themselves. They hide for the first time. They hide from each other, right? But then they also hide from God. And I love what God says when he, it, the text, it kind of alludes to this uh, truth that God spent time with Adam and Eve daily, like an evening walk. God comes out and they're not there. And I love what God says, where are you? God knew where they were, <laughs> but he asks. 
And Adam and Eve's response reveals that they have done the very thing that God had asked them not to do. So it's in these first 11 verses, the first sin of humanity, that we see the two ways we continue to stumble today when it comes to individualism. Did you catch what they are? It's pride and it's shame. Pride and shame. Let's start with pride. Pride is a sin that's revealed from thinking too highly of ourselves, right? Uh, 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 The fruit of pride in people is often individualistic lives of achievement, of self-reliance, of autonomy, right? Self-rule, a life worshiping ourselves as our own God. And we see this is what Satan tempts Adam and Eve with, of all the ways he could have tempted them, like to their material needs or to their hunger or anything else. No, he says this, you'll be like God. It was that thought that set the hook. Not being with God. Do you notice that? They were already with him every day in this beautiful place God had made. But no, it was being like God. Pride is the reason people don't come to Jesus in in faith. Because to become a Christian is to humble yourself. It's to acknowledge that you are a sinner, right? That you're not God. And that you actually need to be reconciled to that God who made you. Becoming a Christian is humbling yourself before God and repenting of your pride, of your autonomy, of your self-worship, to turn from this idea that you are good enough and to understand that your life of achievement, your life of self-reliance, it will never be enough to save you. If you're a Christian in here this morning, you've done that. You've repented, you've turned from your sin, and you've turned to Christ in faith. But even if that's true, if that is where your faith, your daily faith lies, you continue to stumble with pride. I continue to stumble with pride. And I think this stumbling is revealed in us as believers when we reject certain things that are good for us instead of living in them. And these are gifts from God. Pride can be revealed in a lot of ways, but there's three that came to mind for me. And I imagine they may come to mind for you. We stumble with pride. Pride is revealed in us when we reject correction from God's word. When we read something in here, we think, that can't be true. It also happens when we reject correction from other people, other believers. They don't know me. And finally, pride is revealed when we reject life with other people. When we reject life in community. The Bible talks about pride a lot uh, in a lot of places. One of the most prominent places is in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is this, it's wisdom literature from Solomon. He had written this to his sons. And there's three Proverbs I wanted to pick about pride. There's so many more, but I just want to pick three. Just look at the posture of the person being described in Proverbs here. Proverbs starting in 13.10. Arrogance or pride leads to nothing but strife. But wisdom is gained by those who take advice. Proverbs 15, verse 32. Anyone who ignores discipline despises himself. But whoever listens to correction acquires good sense. And finally, Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before his downfall, a person's heart is 
proud. But humility comes before honor. So those are just a few. There's a lot more if you were to read Proverbs uh, that reveal the heart of a proud person. A proud person rejects counsel, rejects people, rejects the wisdom from God. And they reject it because they think it's, it's critical to their identity. <laughs> they don't need it. But we actually see those things as gifts God gives us, his word and his people. Those are gifts of God's grace to us. And correction is loving because what it does is it realigns us with God's heart, what God would want for us. But pride, it causes us to reject it. Reject encouragement in life with other people, life under the authority of his word. Because whose authority do we want to be under? Mine. Only mine. Pride sets us on a trajectory of an individualistic life where we don't experience God's grace and fellowship in his word or in community. And it's here that we find that we stumble. So let's think about ourselves for just a moment. Are there any places in your life right now where you think you're out of alignment with the word of God? When you read the Bible, or the Bible is read to you, maybe from someone in your life, and you're confronted with sin, how do you respond? Do you see that as a gift of love from God or from others? Or do you say, you don't know me, and you justify it, and you reject it? Jesus often interacted with people in his ministry, and there's a group of people uh, religious leaders whose pride blinded themselves to their need for Jesus. This group was called the Pharisees. You'll see them all throughout the gospel accounts. And in Matthew 23, Jesus had begun renouncing them because there were some things the Pharisees were doing, ways they were leading that needed to be called out. And so this whole passage, you can read it later this week, Jesus says, woe to you, Pharisees, over and over again. And then he, he tells them what's wrong. But in the middle of this monologue Jesus has, look at what he says about pride. This is Matthew 23, verse 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The pride and the arrogance of these leaders, what it did what it caused them was to a life of elitism, <laughs> right? They saw themselves as above God's word, above God's need for, for other people and community. One of their favorite indictments of Jesus was that Jesus hung out with sinners, that he went and he went to the people that those Pharisees would never even look at because their pride. They would not share themselves with those people, but Jesus did because that's what pride does. Pride leads us apart from others toward, in, toward an individualistic life where we reject the wisdom of God's word and God's people. If you look back to Genesis 3, we see how pride and becoming like God, that idea was what led Adam and Eve to sin. And while that was their heart's desire in that moment, how they responded after they sinned shows them the other way. We continue to stumble in our faith. 
and it's shame. Once they sinned, the first thing they did was cover themselves up. You know, I've got little kids at home, and when they do something wrong, they hide, right? We do the same thing. That's hardwired into us because shame convinces us something is wrong with us. Not just that we did something wrong, but no, we are something wrong. This is how guilt and shame are, are kind of different. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist. He's a doctor, and he's a Christian, and he wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. It's a book I've read a couple times. Highly recommend this book. Um, and he explains the difference between guilt and shame in this way. I think it's really helpful. Researchers have described shame as a feeling that's deeply associated with a person's sense of self, apart from any interactions with others. Guilt, on the other hand, emerges as a result of something I've done that negatively affects someone else. Guilt is something I feel because I've done something bad. Shame is something I feel because I am bad. We see this reality play out in the garden in Genesis 3, right? Adam's, Adam and Eve's view of themselves fundamentally changed after they sinned. They felt shame for the first time. They cover themselves from each other. They hide from the God who made them, who enjoyed spending time with them. Now, it's really important to understand that we are going to feel a sense of shame when we come to Christ. Because we're going to understand our need, right, and our, and our sin, but shame is often a reason many people never come to Christ. And they believe, because what they believe is because of the things that they've done or the things that have happened to them. If God knew about those things, he would never accept me. If God really knew me, he'd put his hands like this and say, no. People often live there and they don't come to Christ because of that. But the gospel speaks to our shame because to, be, to become a Christian is to believe that Jesus' death on the cross is enough for you right now, that you are worthy of his love and acceptance now, not some future version of you that has cleaned themselves up or has figured things out. No, Jesus meets you where you are at whatever moment you choose to trust him, to bring your shame and your sin to him. And he continues to love you and to sustain you after that moment you believe. But even if we believe this, we stumble, don't we? Just like how pride causes us to stumble by rejecting God's word and rejecting God's gift of life and community, we actually do the same things when it comes to shame, but instead of rejecting them, we retreat from them. There's no way what God says about me in his word can be true. With how I continue to stumble, we retreat from the truth and encouragement from God's word. We retreat from encouragement of others. You don't really know me, okay? What you're saying, you're just making me feel better, but you don't really know who I am. So that causes us to retreat from people. Retreat from being known. We see this happen in an interaction that Jesus had in the book of John, chapter 4. One day, Jesus was traveling around with his disciples. And his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus sits down by this well. And it's about noon, hottest part of the day. And he notices there's this woman coming up to the well to draw water, which is interesting. 
um, because it's not what you would normally do. You would come to the well to draw water early in the morning, later in the evening, uh, when it's not so hot, right? Um, but this woman comes to draw a well at noon, and she's, she's coming up there alone, which is, you know, the context is kind of showing she doesn't really want to see anybody. And she sees Jesus, <laughs> which is funny, because Jesus is going to talk to you. Just what he does, <laughs> right? But we also see in this account that this woman was from Samaria. Jesus was Jewish, and Samaritans and Jews did not like each other. Years of, of animosity between these two ethnic groups existed, okay? And so this woman shows up. Jesus is sitting down. He's like, hey, can I have a drink? And the first thing she says is, why are you talking to me? <laughs> it's in there. It's like, what are you doing? Like, you don't talk to me. I don't talk to you. Or people, we don't, we don't talk, okay? But Jesus continues to talk to her. And the conversation gets to a point where Jesus said that he could give this woman living water. Which to this woman, she thought, that means water I don't have to come and get from the well every day. And for someone to come along and and offer that to a person who's coming up to the well alone, hoping not to see anybody at the hottest part of the day, she's like, okay, tell me how you can give me that. And this is where we're going to jump into the text. This is John chapter 4, starting in verse 15. Sir, the woman said, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband. Jesus told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Verse 19, sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, so... This conversation takes quite a turn, (laughs) doesn't it? Hey, we're talking about water here. And then it turns into a conversation about what this was most likely the area of this woman's life where she felt the most shame. She was most likely seen in her community in a very negative light due to what Jesus brought up, her relational past. It's probably why she was coming to the well at noon. And do you notice she does the very thing that we do When confronted with something we don't want to talk about, she deflects and she changes the subject. (laughs) Like, not going there with this guy who doesn't know me and shouldn't be talking to me in the first place. But she says, hey, I get that you may be a prophet, but let's talk about some theological question, (laughs) right? Who's right and where we should worship? But as the interaction continues, Jesus doesn't reject her. He doesn't shame her. He draws her out, and he engages her. And he eventually says, you know that Messiah that you and your people are waiting for? It's me. It's me. And look at what happens. She believes. And look at the fruit of this belief that very moment. John chapter 14, verse 39. Then it says, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. That woman went back to the town, the place she left at the hottest part of the day. She went to the people she didn't want to walk to the well with. And she told them, the Messiah is here. Come and meet this man who's told me everything I've ever done. Jesus met this woman in her shame 
He didn't keep himself from her and say, hey, go figure out that relationship situation, then come back to the well. He didn't say that. He met her in the midst of it. And not only did she believe the beautiful part of the story is others did too, because she no longer withdrew from her community. She went to them. She shared how her experience with Jesus had changed her. Shame often is so powerful that we don't do that. It leads to life of individualism, a life not experiencing God's grace or his goodness in community or believing the truth about us. Now, individualism, as I said before, right, it's not something we think about a lot. It's kind of just part of our culture. It's part of our way of life. We celebrate it. Right? We celebrate self-reliance and independence. It's part of our ethos as Americans. But we do see how this pursuit of this, it can be at odds with what we're called to as believers. Our lives of faith often go this way because of deeper issues, because of pride, because of shame. It causes us to reject or retreat from others instead of with them. And here we stumble. You know, for me, as a follower of Jesus, I, I need some diagnostic questions usually when it comes to, 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 to the word and just kind of like, I need to think. <laughs> and there's been some questions that I've been thinking about this week that I want us to think about um, as individuals. There's three questions. First one is this. Do you have a rhythm of reading and responding to the Bible, to God's word to us? Second question is this. How do you respond when you realize your life is out of alignment with Scripture? I think there's three ways we can respond here. We can reject it in pride. We can retreat from it in shame. Or we can believe it in faith and be grateful for it in faith from the correction. Last question for us is this. Are you living your life in community? Are you known by others? My wife, Danielle, and our kids, and, you know, we joined a RIV community this week. Uh, we, had our, we had our first gathering a few days ago, and it was great because we experienced God's grace in being together with God's people. And you know what we did? Nothing crazy. <laughs> we talked. We shared food. We prayed. We got to know each other. And it was so powerful because that's what God made us to do. That's how we experience his grace. It's in community and knowing others and being known. See, these questions are meant to help us understand and diagnose maybe where we stumble when it comes to our individual lives as followers of Jesus. But however that may be happening, you know, my hope is that we understand today that the gospel is the answer. Whether we stumble with pride or we stumble with shame. The gospel, what that is, that means good news. It's the truth of Jesus Christ and his work for us. That Jesus came to the earth to rescue us from our sin. And he did so by living the perfect life that God hoped we would live. Jesus never sinned like Adam and Eve did in the garden. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. We see that in the text, right? He lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father. But his earthly life ended when he died on a cross 
for the sins of the world, for Adam's sin, Eve's sin, my sin, and your sin. Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he, he resurrected, right, proving he was God. He conquered the power of sin and Satan and death. And the good news is that because Jesus did that, because he paid the price for our sin, we don't have to. That reality, though, only goes into effect by faith in him. By repenting of our pride, humbling ourselves, acknowledging, yes, we are sinful and we need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And not only do we believe in that gospel for our salvation, for becoming a follower of Jesus, but we believe in that gospel every single day for our sanctification, for growing up, becoming more like Jesus, our continual belief in Christ. That is the answer for our stumbling. Because the gospel says different things to you, whether or not you're stumbling with pride or you're stumbling with shame. What does it say to you over here? If you're stumbling with pride, what does the gospel say to you? What I think it says is that you are worth so much more than the things in your life you define yourself by. Get off that treadmill of autonomy, of self-worship, And rest in that God has already accepted you. Experience God's grace, not not by living under your authority anymore, but under the authority of his word. Experience life as a follower of Jesus by being known by others in community. What does the gospel say to you if you're stumbling with shame? Well, I think it says you are worth so much more than the things in your life you want to hide. Nothing you can do, nothing you can say can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Experience God's grace by believing the things God says about you that are true. You're loved. You're a child of him that will never not be true. If you trust him, experience life as a follower of Jesus by being known and encouraged by others in community. See, what I love about the gospel, the the work of Jesus, it's like glasses, right? It, It helps us see things clearly, ourselves clearly, however we're stumbling. Because if you're stumbling with pride, you know what the gospel does, it humbles you. It brings you down from your place of pride and it helps you depend on God and his grace instead of yourself. If you're stumbling with shame, you know what the gospel does. It honors you. It brings you out of your low place of brokenness and sin and it helps you rest in his grace that he is a father who will never reject you. As individual followers of Jesus, my hope is that we remember that our lives of faith are best experienced when we're known by God, when we're known by others, and we're living under the authority of his word he's given to us. Let us be a people like that. Let's pray. Father, I do first just thank you for your word to us. 
that it's clear and that it's so just accessible for us to see you and know you and know ourselves. And God, I even think about myself and the times in my life where I am alone by my own doing and how, God, I can, I can go to those places because I, I think I'm above community or above your word or I just think I don't deserve it at all and I, none of this will ever be true of me. God, those are areas of my life I stumble in. But God, I'm thankful that your grace is bigger than our stumbling. That because of what Jesus has done, we're secure. In our stumbling, in our sprinting everywhere, we thank you that the gospel lowers us when we're prideful down to this place of of people who do not have to rely on our works, but it brings us out of our shame to a place where our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ given to us. That is how you see us right now. We thank you for that. Help us remember that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.